Hello Pediatric Commuters, I'm happy to be back with a new episode after a break. Also, I would like to mention how pleased I am that this podcast had 1,400 listeners up to now. Our guest today is Dr. Helen Goodyear, a pediatrician at Heartlands Hospital in Birmingham. She runs pediatric dermatology clinics and is also the head of school of pediatrics for the West Midlands Deanery. We will discuss about eczema or atopic dermatitis in the pediatric population. I have to mention that this podcast expresses the views of the host and guests and that medicine is a constantly changing science and art. One doctor may have a different way of doing things from another. This podcast is not sponsored by any drug or device companies. Have a safe commute! Hello and welcome to this episode of the Pediatric Commuter. Today we are joined by Dr. Helen Goodyear. We are right here in Heartlands Hospital in the middle of the West Midlands and we're going to discuss about atopic eczema. Welcome Dr. Goodyear. Thank you. We'll start with the definition and this definition is from the NICE guidance for atopic eczema or atopic dermatitis and it says atopic eczema is a chronic inflammatory itchy skin condition that develops in early childhood in the majority of cases. It is typically an episodic disease of exacerbation and remissions. It often has a genetic component which leads to the breakdown of the skin barrier. This makes it susceptible to trigger factors which can make the eczema worse. So starting from this definition, how soon in a baby's life can we see signs of eczema? It's more common to see it after a couple of months of age, but some babies do have changes within the first couple of weeks of life. They should not be confused with dry skin that you see in the small for dates or the post-mature, which will resolve without any treatment. So it's inordinately variable, but it is common to see it round about the age of two to three months. And what would the parents see as a first sign? Would it be around the cheeks or where, where would this, where would the first signs be present? It often is the face because the face is exposed. So it's easier to scratch the face, for example, to rub it. Um, and so the first signs are typically some redness. And in a baby, you do not have the flexural distribution that you have in older children. Typically, you get the flexural distribution after a year of age. So it's often the extensor surfaces. So it starts with the face and then goes to er other areas of the body. But don't look for the typical flexural distribution. It's not there. Some babies begin with a much more seborrheic dermatitis um, type picture with a typical cradle cap, the scaling, the redness, and of course most seborrheic dermatitis resolves, but some children do go from seborrheic dermatitis to atopic eczema. Can parents do anything to prevent eczema? We know that there is some evidence around breastfeeding, um, but is, for example, avoiding certain triggers or certain types of food in maternal diet. Can this make a difference in, um, in the way the eczema appears or how soon it appears? There's been quite a lot of work done on this, and in particular in America. Um, last year, I was at the World Congress of Pediatric Dermatology, and the results that were presented were very exciting in that once you've got one child with eczema, the next pregnancy, mothers need to be proactive before the baby is born. It's 
there is some evidence, not perhaps that strong, and you know, further studies are awaited that taking probiotics in the last trimester of pregnancy is helpful. But what is particularly helpful is that when the baby is born, using a suitable emollient to moisturize them from head to toe twice a day for at least the first six months. Um, again, some evidence that if the baby has probiotics, this could also be helpful if mother continues them, if she's breastfeeding. But I think the key thing is emollients, top to toe, twice a day. Avoid products that are going to be harsh to the skin. So sodium lauryl sulfate is in a lot of baby care products. An inordinate number. There was a paper at the British Society of Paediatric Dermatology last year uh, and it actually won the prize because somebody had looked at all the baby care products on the market and most of them contain sodium lauryl sulfate which should never be used as a leave-on emollient and preferably not used at all. And it's in common products such as shampoos, baby creams, stop all of those, stop things like bubble baths, use your emollients and you can prevent at least 50% of children getting eczema. In an older child, the, the GP or the paediatrician thinks there might be eczema, there is just a bit of dry skin and a bit of um, distribution uh, where it should be for that age. Is this the first step in tackling eczema, emollients? Emollients and it's using them properly. If you look at the NICE guidance, it says use 250 grams at least per week. It very much depends on the age of the child because you're going to get much different coverage in a child of one with 250 grams to a child of 14, 15, 16. And so it's not uncommon with severe eczema that you need five 500 gram tubs per week. It's also key to find out what the child's doing with the emollient. None of us like going out looking greasy and shiny. And so if you give an ointment to a teenager, chances are you're going to get non-compliance. So they need to be able to have one that they're going to use. Yes, ointments are better for a number of reasons, but if they will use a cream, it's better to give them something that they're actually going to put on the skin. And that is your foundation of eczema management. Plenty of emollients and keeping the skin moisturised. We all know that this podcast is not sponsored by any, any particular company, but parents usually ask, is one emollient better than the other? Are they all the same? It's just the way the baby or the child responds to it. Well, it often comes down to personal preference and feel. I'm lucky. I have two paediatric dermatology nurses. We have lots of samples. And obviously we do steer them. But, you know, they can feel them. They can test them out on the skin. The main difference is creams and ointments. Creams have many more preservatives. So, for example, if you take something generic, like emulsifying ointment, aqueous cream is emulsifying ointment with more water and preservatives in it. So if you explain to a patient that this rather lardy looking stuff, if they use it as a soap substitute in the bath, it will go to a nice cream that they can wash off. So ointments less preservatives, you do get sensitization to the preservatives, but the balance is 
less preservatives in ointments, more compliance with creams. How do we recognise eczema flare-ups and what should we advise parents to do at that point? Okay, you can often recognise them because the child becomes less comfortable. There'll be increased redness of the skin, increased excoriations. There may be papules, vesicles, crusts on the skin, obvious pustules as a sign of infection. So, just like in a number of other conditions, patients need a sort of step up, step down regime. That when the eczema flares up, they need to step up treatment. So, you know, in good times, they may be able to put an emollient on um, twice a day. When it's flared up, it needs to be four times a day. Likewise, um, they may be using a topical steroid only on two consecutive days as sort of maintenance therapy. They'll need to step that up to a daily when it's flared up. And so patient education and parent education is absolutely vital in eczema so that they know what to do with flares, get on top of them quickly, and then they don't become the exacerbated cases that we see presenting to secondary care. It's almost like asthma. Children should have, like they have an asthma plan, that you have an eczema plan. Yes. How do we advise them to use steroids? I know a lot of paediatricians, a lot of trainees, really do not understand how, me myself included, how to use them, which one should be advised, how much of it should we apply, is it safe to be on the face? Yeah. And of course, those are the rules that you need to go over. So everybody who comes to my clinic has a written treatment plan. We've got, uh, it's an A5 booklet, four sides. And so we write down the treatment and we write down what to do as maintenance and what to do when it flares up. And of course, once they've been to clinic, they've got the contact numbers of my paediatric dermatology nurses and they can ring up for advice because there's a lot for parents to take in. Going to topical steroids, we need to be thinking in terms of fingertip units. If we're applying fingertip units, it's a safe amount to apply. What we don't want, and this is exceedingly rare, but the very occasional person will squirt out of the tube lots of topical steroid and put it on like an emollient. The fact that it comes in a tube and not a tub is a sort of helpful sign that this is something which needs to be put on in a limited amount. Most parents are the other end, they are steroid phobic and they don't use enough. So measure in fingertip units. There's a lot of guidance on the internet about fingertip units and it applies whoever's hand that you're using. You tend to use topical steroids once or twice daily until we've got control and then we go down to twice weekly on two consecutive days. We often call this weekend therapy because Saturday and Sunday are very convenient days to do this. I think in children one needs to be cautious so that if you are somebody who's not used to dealing with children with atopic eczema, then it's safe to use 1% hydrocortisone on the face, but I wouldn't want it to be going on and on. So for a limited period of time, if the child is over two, it's safe, providing they're using fingertip units, to be using a moderate potency 
topical steroid such as betamethasone valerate 0.025% or clobetazone butyrate 0.05%. If you are needing potent topical steroids in a young child, then they need to be referred to a specialised dermatology clinic. With the face, we don't like ongoing topical steroids for too long a length of time. And again, this may be when you need to refer to dermatology because we would go on to something like a calcineurin inhibitor if we were needing to use more than a moderate potency in an over two for more than um, a week at a time. And if it was going on very thin sites, such as the eyelids and obviously there's the risk of going into the eye. With topical steroids, you do need to tell patients and parents about what the leaflet in the box will say. Because it says, don't use unbroken skin. Well, then that excludes eczema. Don't use for more than five days. Well, if the eczema's there, it's not going to improve. And a number of other things. So you need to explain how to use it. And of course, this is where Dermatology Clinic comes in. Even if it's just a one-off, to demonstrate unhurriedly with the nurse how to apply all of these treatments. This was actually one of my next questions. When should GPs or general paediatricians refer to dermatology clinics? You definitely cannot see all the children that have eczema. Absolutely not, and we don't need to see most. If people are given some good basic advice, that will sort the vast majority of them out. So I only see the tip of the iceberg. Um, we've done quite a lot of training sessions for our local GPs. I do try to speak at all the paediatric teaching days, or my colleagues um, do. There are the nice guidance. And of course, I'll just, shall I just go over some of those yes, of conditions? So eczema herpeticum, that's a condition that should always be referred into hospital. Depending on which unit you're in, there's absolutely no reason why uh, paediatricians cannot treat this, providing it's responding to intravenous acyclovir. For general practice, um, if something hasn't responded to optimum topical treatment in a week and the GP is confident that optimum treatment's been done, that should be referred in. If Bacterial infections have been treated appropriately with a 7-10 to 10 day course of antibiotics and they're not responding, that needs referring. In any case where the diagnosis is uncertain, it can be difficult. Is it hyperkeratotic eczema? Is it psoriasis? The treatments are different. A number of other conditions can masquerade. Um, sometimes it's just straightforward in patigo. So if there's if there's uncertainty, if children are getting sort of one to two flares per month, that's too much. It's not well controlled. And if eczema's not controlled, that needs referring. Facial eczema that's not responding to treatment, as we've already discussed, I'd have a lower threshold because we do not want to be putting continuous steroids on the face, even of low potency. If there's a suggestion that it could be an allergic contact dermatitis, such as nickel sensitization, we often see that with gene studs in atopic eczema, we need to diagnose that and treat it. 
if there are social problems, things like poor sleep, school attendance is poor, then it's very important to refer in. If children are having severe and recurrent infections, and I think all of us would probably refer this, but deep abscesses, pneumonia, atopic eczema can be associated with Job's and other immune conditions, so it's important that that's referred. If the child is failing to thrive, you're not going to get growth until you've controlled the eczema. And if there's significant lymphadenopathy, that means the eczema is not well controlled, the lymphadenopathy is not going to go down, and so it needs specialised input to get the skin under control. That are quite a few reasons, I'm sure that's not an exclusive list. What are the weapons that a paediatric dermatology has on top of the usual emollients and steroids? What else can you do for these patients? Okay, I think one of the key things is that, you know, this is the bread and butter of my dermatology clinics. And so we are well used to dealing with these cases and familiar. Secret weapon are my dermatology nurses and the fact that they have half hour appointments, which is much more than doctors and particularly consultants have in the outpatient clinic. Because we have to remember that when we're told something, we take 20% of it in. If we're anxious, we probably take about 5% in. So the fact that you've gone over something once, you may have to go over it 10 times because empowering patients that are old enough or the parent to be able to understand why treatments are done gets much better compliance. Once we're sure that we've got compliance with emollients and topical steroids, we have tar impregnated um, and zinc impregnated bandages, uh, such as ick the paste or, or the zinc paste. Um, then we have wet wraps where we can either use emollients alone underneath um, a dressing such as Tubifast, Clinifast, Actifast. Um, you know, I'm not a brand person, but just to give you some idea. And uh, these can be worn single, which I'm not a fan of. Um, or they can be worn double with lots of emollient underneath. And sometimes we put the topical steroid underneath as well. If children are very itchy, we can use UVB light therapy. We can use the calcineurin inhibitors. Those need to be initiated by somebody who is used to looking after paediatric dermatology cases. We work very closely with allergy colleagues. So is it something that the child is sensitive to and that will come on history um, mainly. Is it that their asthma is poorly controlled and therefore they're receiving multiple short courses of prednisolone which typically sort out the asthma but flare up the eczema afterwards. Is it that we need to get their asthma under better control? If we've been through all of this then we're left with the systemic immunosuppressants and coming on board are the biologics. Is there any role for antihistamines? Usually parents complain that the skin is really itchy, the child yes. cannot sleep, and we feel like giving antihistamines. Yeah, well, the best treatment is actually getting on the emollients. So plenty of emollients. And that's a case where you may want to think, 
of wet wraps at night because we don't want people up putting ointments or creams on at night. So something to hold plenty in contact with the skin. The NICE guidance says to give a trial. If you're giving a trial of a non-sedating antihistamine for a month, and to stop if it's not helping. I think the sedating antihistamines are by far the most helpful, but you do get tolerance to them. So they're better used for acute flare-ups when you know parents often feel very desperate with atopic eczema and something to give two or three days break can just help the family cope. So that's really what they should be reserved for. If we suspect that there's, there is infected eczema, when should we start oral antibiotics and when IVs? I know this might sound, sound a very silly questions, but we get a lot of referrals in the pediatric assessment unit with infected eczema. Yes. Providing the child is not vomiting and is able to take oral antibiotics, then they should be oral. We're treating ourselves a lot of the time by putting in IVs. And of course, with a cannula, as I saw a child a couple of days ago, you're not able to get them well in the bath. Bathing is an important step in infected eczema. So think, do you really need that IV? That's very different to when you've got widespread disseminated herpes simplex virus infections when you must give IV acyclovir. In an infected eczema, when should we start a cyclovir? Which are the signs that we will see in a child that has eczema herpeticum? The first sign of eczema herpeticum is that the skin gets sore, that's what patients will say, and you get grouped vesica pustules. But of course they're intensely itchy, so often by the time it's seen, you get punched out lesions, and these are quite deep punched out lesions. I would say if there's ever any doubt, start the acyclovir. If it heals and it heals without punched out lesions, you've either caught it very early or it probably wasn't eczema, herpeticum. It's better to treat acyclovirs well tolerated and if at 48 hours everything looks good, you can go to oral acyclovir or you can stop it, depending on a review by somebody who's specialised in paediatric dermatology. Skin swabs are always helpful, but it depends how the swab's taken. You need to rub the base of a lesion. If you don't rub and rub quite firmly, you won't pick up herpes simplex virus. Okay, this was all extremely useful information. I have just one last question. What is your personal bugbear when we discuss about eczema. What do parents or pediatricians do that you're really not happy with? Okay, I'm not sure it's, I wouldn't limit this to pediatricians, it's primary care as well, but my personal bugbear is the carrier bag syndrome. When parents come in, they're carrying two carrier bags full of all the different emollients and steroid creams that they've been given and it can take me, well, 10-15 minutes to go through. And the problem is, one emollient is pretty much like another. It's that they haven't been explained 
how to use these things. So explanation and education is absolutely key to treating atopic eczema. And so please can we avoid the carrier back syndrome. It's a waste of NHS resources and really just focus on patient and parent education. Excellent. Thank you so much. I will try to link down below in the description of the podcast the NICE guidance and all the other useful information that we have, even patient leaflets to give for uh, to give to parents when we when we see them. Thank you, Dr. Goodyear. I hope we'll see you again for a discussion on a different topic. Okay, that's a pleasure. Thank you for staying with us until the end. As usual, you'll find a lot of useful resources in the description box. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and let us know if you have any ideas of themes that could be discussed in the next episodes. If you prefer to listen to us in an app, you can search for Pediatric Commuter in the podcast app on iPhones, Podbean or Google Podcasts for Android-operated phones. Hit the subscribe button and don't forget to rate us. Have a nice day!